I'm Charlotte. And I'm Dina. Welcome to The Grim Curriculum. Winter has finally hit us, January 2024. I hate it. Today, it was approximately minus 41, not including the wind chill, and apparently it's supposed to get even colder. We had a good run. We did have a good warm run, and yes, the Arctic cold has finally hit us. The vehicles are not working. Everything is frosty. The air hurts our faces. Why do we live where the air hurts our faces? (sighs) Who knows? But that is only a small discomfort, apparently, compared to the hell that we are going to be talking about today. Yeah, it's here, friends. It's here. And Dina has already warned me. I'm very familiar with this case already, but she did warn me that this is a pretty gross episode. So I'm going to pass that warning on to y'all. Yeah. Because we are here at the fourth and final part of our Rock Terrio and the Ant Hill Kids series. We last left off with him and his followers finally facing some consequences for their actions. Only after the deaths of multiple people, including a two-year-old little boy. Today we will be talking about Rock's return, their new home, and unfortunately even more forced amputation and sheer torture. We're also going to be talking about how Rock was finally stopped and the justice he would finally face. Rock Terrio was released from prison in February of 1984. Like we mentioned last week, his followers all moved to be closer to him. Once his sentence was over, a few of them had an idea. Why don't we just stay in the city? Rock obviously hated this idea. Remember, in order for the Ant Hill kids to be under his full control, he needed to isolate them. It's a very important part of leading a cult-like group. He needed to keep them as far away from reality as possible. Them being around other people would just get those people involved in their lives, and he didn't want anyone asking them questions that just might make them think for themselves, or worse, leave him. Luckily for Rock, he was in charge. This time, they relocated to Burnt River. I find this next part very interesting because... The relationships that he had with his followers were very much that. They were relationships. So when he saw that they were thinking about leaving, he decided to change his behavior. For the better? Well, for a bit. We definitely see a cycle of abuse between him and the anthill kids. He told them that he would stop drinking alcohol, and for a little while he did. He, to me, is like the abusive father that's like, yeah, I'll do better, I'll do better, and then never actually does. He is very much like the typical narcissistic, abusive father, partner, person, whatever. He's just, we don't like him, friends. We really don't like him. Another thing that he promised them was that there was going to be no more violence. As you can imagine, this would not be the case. They began constructing their new home in May of that year. The location was perfect for Rock. They would be completely isolated from the rest of society. And they put a lot of effort into their new home. And by they, we mean everyone but Rock. Just like the last time, he essentially sat and barked orders while the others spent all of their time building his dream commune. Jacques and Guy did what they could, but a huge amount of the effort was put forth by the four women who remained in the group. And all four of these women were very pregnant. So on top of being pregnant, they're chopping trees and building a giant two-story cabin. This is all while taking care of the now 10 children living on the commune. When they were done, the anthill kids had one hell of a setup. Their new home was much larger than their original cabin with a bunch of extra things. This included a full kitchen, 
bakery, and a maple sugar shack. Which is very Canadian, isn't it? They even built a big smokehouse, a large cellar for storing food, and then they topped it all off with something a little extra special for Rock. They built him a special sanctuary out of stone where he could go and communicate with God. And speaking of his wives, he had made some changes with his relationships with them. Of course, they were all still sleeping together. However, now he had established a new hierarchy among them. At the bottom was poor Maurice, who after the tragic death of her son Samuel was pregnant again. Rock had a lot of control over Jacques and forbade him from having any kind of sexual contact, let alone share a bed. Not only that, he managed to convince him that a birthmark she had was actually the mark of the devil. He also encouraged Jacques to beat her viciously if she ever talked back to either of them. That's right, Rock told him it was totally fine to brutally beat his pregnant wife, and he went along with it. Before long, he forced her to live separated from everyone else with her two children. The crazy thing is, Rock was so manipulative and had his followers under such strong control that any time a visitor showed up, they were led to believe everything was fine. Sure, the Ant Hill kids were a little weird, but as far as anyone else knew, nothing too terrible was happening out at Burnt River. Money was tight, and the group attempted to apply for funding. They were denied based off of the fact that they weren't a family in need. They were considered an institution of their own. Rock also encouraged his followers to reach out to their families and ask them for money. Most of the family said yes, but only if they were to leave the commune. They, of course, refused, and Rock used this as ammo to distance them all further from their loved ones. Surely he knew that this would be the response, and so... It was kind of a win-win for him in the sense that if the families did give money, then great, more money for the Ant Hill kids. And if they didn't, he would use that to separate them from their families even more. Well, he could very easily say, see, I'm the only one that takes care of you. I'm the only one that loves you. Your own families are turning their backs on you. Very much brainwashing. He encouraged them to do what they had to do to keep the group running, and usually this consisted of them stealing food and other necessities. Seriously, he had his wives wear giant jackets with extra pockets so that they could go in stores and fill them up with whatever they needed from the various spots in nearby Lindsay. And this might be a little offhand, but it reminds me of that episode of The Simpsons where Homer takes Marge to a candy convention and makes her hide all the samples in a big jacket. That's basically <laughs> what this is to me. Totally. Oh my god. You know, The Simpsons really did predict a lot of things. They did. In January of 1985, Jacques was caught shoplifting. Soon after, four other members, along with Rock Jr., were caught with a few hundred dollars worth of goods, and as a punishment, they were banned from shopping in Lindsay. Rock decided it was time for a more honest approach. He had them sell various baked goods and fruit that they had grown on the new compound. This actually worked really well, and before long, the group was making decent money, and they were able to support themselves. We do just want to reiterate, Rock isn't helping with any of this. He is just telling them what to do. I know he's already like one of the worst people we've covered, but that just makes him even worse for me because I hate that kind of person. All in all, things are actually looking pretty good for the Ant Hill kids. They're making money, they have this fancy new commune, and Rock is finally sober. And once again, it was fine until it wasn't. The problem was that things were going a little too well. Rock quickly became bored. 
He missed his drunken ranting and raving, and things just really weren't exciting enough for him. He was still complaining about his stomach pains and told his followers that the only thing that would help would be beer. So he had to start drinking again. And once he started drinking, things went downhill again. He'd get completely wasted and loudly boast about his amazing treasures and fortune. And for the record, he had no treasures and no fortune. He would stand there holding crappy costume jewelry while loudly proclaiming he was God. He would also pin his wives against each other. Often, he'd use their low self-esteem to make them jealous of one another to ensure there was no peace on the compound. Because chances are, if they were to get along, they might just start plotting against him, and of course, he couldn't let that happen. To ensure there was maximum tension in the group, he would often make the women strip naked and fight until they couldn't take it anymore. Sometimes, he would throw Guy or Jacques in the middle of the women and order them to beat him. In order to keep things equal, Rock would often jump in the middle himself. However, they all knew that if he was hit, the punishment would be not getting to eat. And he often used starvation against them. Despite the group's newfound success, they still lived off of corn and potatoes, and they didn't get a whole lot to begin with. And it gets worse. He would often beat his followers with blunt objects. He would break bones often, and if someone got hurt, they weren't allowed to go to the hospital. They just had to deal with it. He would also force them to participate in group orgies, where he would make them perform analingus on one another and smear feces all over their faces, often while urinating on them. I'll let that sink in for a sec. That was hard to say. I, you know, it's gonna get gross, it's gonna get nasty, we're so sorry. Mm -hmm. He also circumcised Jacques. Because of course he did. That's literally one of his things that he keeps going back to for some odd reason. He loves circumcising dudes. I don't there We don't have time to unpack that. I'm not a psychologist or a mental health professional. We'll say enough about that. This was, of course, in the evenings. Every morning he would cry and beg them for forgiveness and saying that God made him do it. On the morning of January 26, 1985, Gabrielle took the son that she had with Rock, who was only five months old, and placed him in a wheelbarrow. She then wheeled the baby outside and left him there. Rock was convinced that the child bore the mark of the devil and would often beat him viciously. Gabrielle would later say that she considered this an act of mercy. The death was ruled as sudden infant death syndrome by the county coroner, who just so happened to have a fondness for Rock. Eventually, Rock grew tired of Maurice and told her that she could leave under one condition. She had to leave her oldest daughter with Rock so that she could become his wife. And this young lady was only just starting to go through puberty. Maurice left and immediately began to try to legally gain custody of her daughter. This investigation drew the attention of various child advocacy agencies and the kids were once again taken to foster homes. It didn't take long until the people who were caring for the children realized there was a huge problem. When they were asked about how they were living, they spoke candidly and shocked those around them. Well, these kids have grown up in this cult. To them, everything they've experienced so far is very normal because they've never experienced a quote-unquote normal life. Yeah, they're used to their daddy the cult leader. So they're going to talk candidly about it because they probably don't realize that anything's wrong with that. And it's probably a good thing that they did speak candidly about it. Rock encouraged that the children would be starved and beaten, and even those who were his. 
He would often take a child in each hand and hold them over a fire while their mothers cried and begged for him to spare their babies. He would nail them to trees by their clothing and order the other children to throw stones at them until he said that they could stop. On one occasion, he had one of the young girls raise a goat from a baby. When he saw how attached she was, he disemboweled it in front of her and made her wash as he bathed in its blood. The children also spoke of the group sex that was happening and shocked those around them by saying they were often forced to be involved. Both Rock and Rock Jr. would often have sex with the girls and make the boys perform other acts on them and each other. On top of all of this, they were all malnourished and had mouths filled with rotting teeth. Many of them also couldn't read due to the fact that Rock had been the only one allowed to educate them. This meant that he provided them with what he called a religious education and a sexual one. Rock was spoken to about this and an independent assessment was ordered by the court. A 300-page report was written up and what is in it is really going to piss you off. Yep, they said that Rock had a pioneer spirit and that he was just a strange guy. They judged the court for not understanding and again used the fact that he was French and they were prejudiced as their reason for thinking ill of him. Again, he has somehow convinced not only doctors, but government officials that everything was fine, to the point where they claimed that the disbanding of the group would be an infringement of their rights. Thankfully, not everyone was fooled, and on October 26, 1987, the children were all made wards of the crown. There was to be no parental contact. They asked Maurice to testify against him in court, but she was too frightened. Rock realized he needed more friends and quick. So he joined up with the Mormon fundamentalist movement and met LDS branch president and forensic psychiatrist Dr. Jess Grosbeck. It was also around this time that he met Alex Joseph, a controversial figure in the Mormon church who shared Rock's fondness of polygamy and telling everyone that you were a magical healer. And Alex Joseph was really, really intense, which we want to point out because he didn't actually care for Rock, who he thought was a bit too much. If you've heard of Alex Joseph, um, he's also very much an extremist within the Mormon religion. And the fact that he is an extremist thought that Rock was pretty batshit pretty much tells you all you need to know about Rock. It really does. Rock was also not obeying the regulations regarding the children and would often attempt to get in contact with them. He was charged with obstruction of justice for harassing the daughter of one of the foster parents caring for his own children. One evening while drinking, Rock became angry at Claude and ordered him to tie an elastic around his scrotum. He did so, and this caused serious damage to his body. Rock then said that he would operate on him. He used a blade and cut open Claude's scrotum. He then removed one of his testicles and cauterized the area with a piece of hot iron. He then asked his followers to vote on whether or not they should just stone Claude to death. I'm pretty sure at this point, if I was Claude, I'd be like, just kill me. Right? You've literally just had one of your testicles removed on probably the kitchen table in a cabin. By a drunk, crazy, ranting, raving madman. Awful. Rock picked up an acetylene torch and threatened to use it on Claude's stomach. Luckily, Claude was able to run away and hide in the woods until Rock got sober and the violent side of him was gone. 
They would run off pretty often at this point because they were absolutely terrified. Giselle would even run off to her parents' house until Rock Sweet talked her into coming back home. This happened several times. And you can't blame her because one night he threw a hunting knife at her and hit her in the thigh. As Giselle was bleeding profusely from a three-inch deep cut in her leg, Rock simply grabbed another beer and went to bed. He woke up two hours later and decided he would operate on her, which he gets drunk and all of a sudden he's like, I'm a surgeon. I'm a doctor. I'm a healer. And sir, you are the complete opposite Mm -hmm. of that. He pressed hard on the wound while using a hot iron poker to feel around inside. He poured multiple cups of boiling water on the wound and then left Giselle alone. About a week later, the wound became very infected. Rock's solution was to fill up the wound with salt, olive oil, and spruce sap. This is gangrene simply waiting to happen. It is, and it didn't stop there. He would often use the torch on the backs of the women until their skin bubbled. He'd force them onto the ground and kick them in the ribs with steel-toed boots, and this caused multiple women to have miscarriages. As for Claude, he removed all of his teeth with pliers and forced the women to break his legs with a sledgehammer. Rock had his wives pick each pubic hair Claude had out of his body one by one. He'd often force them to jump into freezing water and not get out until he said so. And honestly, we could go on for days. We really could. He would force them to cut fingers off of each other and so many more terrible things. One day, Gabrielle, after working hard all day, suffered a prolapse of the uterus, causing it to protrude three inches out of her vagina. Rock solution? Punch it back into her body and plug it with a handmade wooden cone. Gabrielle fled to a shelter, but returned soon after. She was still suffering greatly. Rock proceeded to tie a string around the organ and attempted to pull it out of her body like a loose fucking tooth. Gabrielle would not be seen by a doctor and treated for an entire year after this. We have talked about some pretty heinous people. As you guys know, Mm -hmm. we we talk about true crime a lot. We've talked about serial killers. We've talked about cannibals. We've talked about horrible, horrible human beings. They kill their victims. And in that sense, there's an end to it. Mm -hmm. These people lived through it again and again and again. And unfortunately, they were so fucking brainwashed, they kept coming back. And that's the thing to keep in mind. He didn't want them to die. No, he wanted them under his control. In late 1988, Solange began to feel unwell. Rock told her that she had a problem with her liver and that she would need to have surgery. A few days later, he got drunk and told her that he was going to treat her that evening. He had her undress and lay on a table. He then spent about half an hour forcefully inserting an enema filled with molasses, oil, and water into her rectum. Whenever she tried to fight back, he told her to stop, and she would. He then stuck a tube down her throat and had the rest of the group blow air into it. I cannot explain to you how fucking dangerous this is. Jesus Christ. Like, the- He is- he's a butcher. He yep. he He fancies himself this healer, this doctor, this surgeon. Honestly- The Nazis in concentration camps would have loved to have him on their team. Absolutely. And I mean, you have to think about, imagine this scene. Imagine being a fly on the wall. Because to me, this is just like 
sheer and total madness. Rock then cut a five-inch incision into her right side and pulled a large piece of flesh out. He showed it to her, because keep in mind, there's no anesthetic here. She is raw-dogging life at this point. Mm -hmm. He told her that she'd be okay. Rock then ordered another member to sew her back up. Once they were finished, he made Solange have a scalding hot bath, followed by an ice bath. Something I want to point out is this was kind of his MO. He would, like, start the procedure, but then by the end of it, he would be so drunk that he would either, like, get bored and walk off, or he'd be like, oh, you finish it. And then everyone else would just have to come up with a solution to this problem he's created. Solange was still alive at this point. She went to bed, and before long, blood began pouring out of her mouth. Soon after, Solange Boyard was dead. The cause of death would be revealed as inflammation caused by digestive fluids leaking into the rest of her body. The death of Solange caused Rock to completely lose it. He screamed and begged for Jacques to kill him. When that didn't work, he took a bunch of extra-strength Tylenol and attempted to drown himself, which honestly would have been a perfectly timed ending to this fucking shit show. I wish it ended here. I I really do. However, when all of that didn't work, he jumped up and he happily proclaimed that God didn't want him to die. Later, he called Dr. Grossbeck and told her that Solange had passed away in the woods and that he was heartbroken. Dr. Grossbeck was initially sympathetic and told Rock there was nothing that he could have done. After a brief conversation, Rock explained to her that God had chosen her to be his guide. He then explained that he had been having some strange dreams where his semen had split in half in his body and created a brand new Solange. That's right. He told her that he thought he was pregnant with the reincarnated version of his wife. Some way, somehow, Dr. Grossbeck bought this, and the two became convinced that Rock was about to give birth through his stomach, and that when he did, Solange would be reborn and everything would be just fine. He called up Alex Joseph, who performed a post-mortem marriage. Alex also officially titled Rock the king of that particular area of Burnt River. Alex Joseph is not Canadian, even. No, he would travel to Utah to see him. Exactly. So I don't know what fucking power Alex thinks he has here, but they're all fucking Delulu. There's so much insanity here. Like, we've been talking about how insane this story is for weeks now, and here it is. Like, here, it, it's, it's even going to get worse. Rock Terrio created sheer madness wherever he went. Oh, and speaking of madness, even though she's literally passed on from this earth, he's not done with Solange yet. The group had her buried shortly after her death, but after the wedding, he ordered that the group exhume her body. He had Gabrielle cut her open and pour vinegar into her body cavity to kill the worms that had started to eat her decomposing flesh. Then they buried her again. A few days after that, Rock told the group to dig her back up again. This time, he had a new idea. He would simply bring her back to life himself. They placed her body on a table, and he had Jacques drill a hole in her skull. Rock then masturbated onto her brain. Jeffrey Dahmer wishes. Like, it's... <sighs> you know, the fact that this story isn't more well-known surprises me, but at the same time, I'm like, glad it's not. This is shit that most human beings would never even think of in their entire lifetime. And here Rock is trying new shit on the daily. 
Eventually, Giselle suggested that they cremate her because that's what she would have wanted, and surprisingly, Rock agreed. However, he had the group remove various bones from her body beforehand. He carried a piece of her rib at all times and placed the rest of the bones into a jar. A jar that he would jerk off into. His reasoning was that by doing this, he could bring her back to life by giving birth to her. It's... It's crazy. I... I... It's not often that I am speechless, but this is disgusting. Not too long after all of this happened, Rock decided to visit Alec Joseph in Utah so that he could give him a baby from the compound who was at risk of being taken away by children's services. And honestly, like, the situation with Alex and his compound wasn't great. No, not good either. But a hell of a lot better than what that baby was going to go through. Something about Alex is that while he did share a lot of Rock's less than conventional beliefs, he really did not agree with how Rock was acting, and he actually confronted him during his visit and spoke out against Rock's treatment of his wives. His wives saw this, and this began to shatter the image of Rock as a god that could not be argued with. He had appeared weak in front of Alex. Over the following months, two more children were born with Rock as the father all while the death of Solange had remained hidden from not only the public, but from her family. One July evening in 1989, Rock had been drinking. By now, everyone knew that if they saw him drinking, they had to run and hide. That evening, everyone was able to escape into the woods, except Gabrielle. Between drinks, he looked at her and asked her how her sore pinky finger was feeling. And this was her only remaining pinky finger, by the way, because he had amputated the other one with a wire cutter. He asked her to put her hand on the table and stabbed a knife through her hand, pinning her there. Gabrielle began to lose consciousness, but remained awake long enough to watch Rock go get another beer. He left her there with blood pouring out of her hand for 45 minutes. When he returned, he calmly said, that's not looking so good, is it? He then grabbed a knife and began to saw through her arm. By this point, he was so intoxicated that he couldn't finish the job on his own. He called Chantal, who cut away through as much of the bone as she could. Please keep in mind that not only is Gabrielle still alive for all of this, she is very much awake. Rock then grabbed the knife that was pinning her to the table and swung viciously at her arm until it became detached from her body. Gabrielle attempted to escape the following day, but was persuaded to come back by Jacques. When Rock saw how infected the area looked, he grabbed a pair of scissors and cut the infection out. He also removed a large portion of her breast. He finished the torture by hitting her in the head so hard that she passed out. This prompted Gabrielle to escape into the woods for two days. During this time, understandably, she was in and out of consciousness. She would later report remembering waking up and finding hundreds of insects eating away at her flesh. When she returned, Rock was still in a drunken state. He had Jacques cut off the drive shaft from an old car they had on the compound. Rock then heated it up and used it to cauterize the spot where Gabrielle's arm once was. This entire process was a slow one due to the fact that he was so drunk, he barely had any control over himself and would continuously drop the scalding heavy piece of metal onto her already battered body. On August 16, 1989, Gabrielle was finally able to successfully escape the compound and make her way to a hospital for treatment. She made up a story regarding her arm and other injuries that didn't implicate Rock in any way. 
Luckily, the police were called and they were more than ready to finally arrest Rock. However, when they arrived at the compound, no one was there. Quite a few members, after seeing all of this, finally left and went back to their families. All that remained was Rock, Jacques, Nicole, Chantal, and two remaining children who had now gone into hiding. They were found six weeks later. That same day, without knowing about Rock's fate, Giselle spoke out about the death of Solange. Everyone who had been involved in the torture of Gabrielle was arrested, and they all pled guilty. In regards to the trial, there really wasn't much of one. Rock was given a sentence of 12 years originally, but the court reduced it due to the fact that he showed, and I quote, genuine remorse. Jacques was given five years, Chantal was given two years less a day, and Nicole was given 18 months. The police tried to push for a first-degree murder charge regarding Solange, but the court determined there was not enough evidence that it was a premeditated murder, so they settled on second degree. Rock had some pretty good lawyers, apparently, because they convinced the court to not charge him for anything else if he pled guilty to the murder charge, which he did. Rock Terrio was finally sentenced to life in prison. During his sentence, he was allowed conjugal visits with his remaining wives and fathered four more children. Guys, hello. Four. Like, that's that's a whole family's worth of kids. Why was this man allowed to see any human being ever again? And you know what? It really surprises me because a lot of the time, if someone commits a crime against a partner or a woman or whichever... Even when they're out of jail, they're going to have conditions that don't allow them to associate with certain people. So the fact that not only was he able to associate with his victims, he was able to still freely have sex with them in jail. That's shocking to me. I would be very curious to hear of anybody that's worked within the legal system in Canada to tell me if there's any other people criminals of this magnitude that were allowed the lenience that Rock Terrio was allowed. I looked into it because he is, when you look up like most dangerous inmates and in whatever, you know, he comes up. Of course. And Paul Bernardo comes up. 100%. Yes. And you think about the two and it's like their crimes were very different, but sexually driven and evil, of course. So it shocks me that he was able to continue having sex like this because obviously like sex is a huge way that he abused people yeah it's it's a big trigger for him so why would you allow him to be in any environment where that's still accessible to him it does not make sense to me his lawyers must have been as hard on for him as everybody else seemed to be yeah because when you think about it he did not get charged for any sex crimes he had sex with underage children. We know that. And he was not ever charged for any of that. Wild. In 2002, Rock was transferred to the Dorchester Penitentiary in New Brunswick. He applied for parole once in 2009 and was denied. Thank God. Mm -hmm. The reason being that he was deemed too high of a risk to reoffend, obviously, and he did not attempt to gain freedom again after that. Gabrielle attended the hearing and expressed a huge amount of relief knowing that he would never be free. She spoke out against the women who continued to have children with him, saying that she didn't understand, but found it very sad that they were still under his power. In 2009, Rock began selling his artwork and poetry online using a website called MurderAuction.com. Luckily, his art never left the prison. 
when it came to his time in prison, it truly seems like he was not well-liked. So much so that it was probably not a huge surprise to the guards when on February 26, 2011, a fellow inmate named Gerard McDonald walked up to their station, calmly placed a bloody shiv in front of them, and proclaimed, That piece of shit is down on the range. Here's the knife. I sliced him up. And just like that, one of the most evil Canadians, arguably one of the most evil people to ever walk the planet, was finally fucking dead. And you know what? We've said this before. I don't advocate for anyone to die, but uh, the world is a much better place without him because he was not, I mean, yes, he did get life, but in Canada, that really does not mean life. And he would have been out. Yes. And 2011, not that long ago. Rock Terrio very well could have been a free man in 2024 had he not met his end that way. And uh, you know what? Uh, Gerard McDonald, he was already serving a life sentence for murder. I was going to ask. I, I don't know much about Gerard McDonald. I'll be the hot taker here and say that he did the world a fucking favor. Right. That's kind of the point where it's like, I hope they slipped a little something extra into his commissary because uh, Buddy deserved it. I don't advocate for murder, but I advocate for murder of people like this. Yep. I fully believe that Rock Terrio, there was no redemption for that evil motherfucker. No, and he didn't want it either. <sighs> he dead. He dead. Thank, Thank God. God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my goodness. I, um, you know, we've wanted to cover this story for a long time and I think there was a lot of hesitation between the two of us for covering it. It's a very interesting case, objectively. It is one of the most awful cases. I'm sure a lot of you out there will be shocked. Whether you're a Canadian yourself or you're from elsewhere in the world, I think you'll be pretty shocked to hear about Rock Terrio if you didn't know about him already. But I would say, hands down, probably one of the worst human beings I've had the displeasure of learning about. And uh, after this, we're never going to talk about him again. Nope. We can discuss it in today's live premiere on YouTube, of course. We want to hear, obviously, what a piece of shit you think he is. Um, but that's it for Rock Terrio, guys. Thank you for coming along on this journey with us. Thank you for bracing yourselves. And uh, those of you who listened to us complain about how rough this was going to be in part one, we showed you. We sure did. We hope you all enjoyed this series as much as you possibly could have. A friendly reminder, um, some extra credit episodes after this might be a good idea to lighten the mood for you. Because uh, after this, I'm sure you just want to go like hug your dog. Yeah, absolutely. We Speaking of extra credit, we will have a new one coming out this coming Wednesday. We'll be recording on Sunday, hopefully. So yes, go check out some extra credit stuff. Go listen to some of our more lighthearted episodes. Throw in a cryptid. Go learn about some Mothman or the Jersey Devil. It's always a good time for Mothman and the Jersey Devil. Absolutely. And speaking of awesome stuff, <laughs> let's talk about Patreon for let's a second. Do it. A splendiferous thank you to Bob, Lisa, Atlantean Jedi, Brian, Hillary, Judy, Kevin, and Mayhem Mudkip. Y'all are the titty city. We appreciate y'all so much. And don't forget, if you enjoy the podcast, please consider sharing it with your friends, giving us a five-star rating, or showing love in any other way. It means a lot to us. And with that, thank you so much for listening. This has been The, the Grim, Grim Curriculum. Curriculum.
I've got a good one for us today. Wonderful. I hope this makes us all feel a little bit better. I hope so. Charlotte, did you know that parrots in the wild actually pass on learned vocal signatures, kind of like names, to their babies? And those names stay with them for life. I adore that. I love that there are critters out there that name each other. And they're parrots. That makes my heart very happy after today's topic. I thought we needed something a little bit happier. Yes, absolutely. Bye. Bye. Bye.